You are listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. It's the newest innovation in CT and allows doctors to obtain four image slices of the body at once as compared to a single slice of a regular CAT scan. The image slices are thinner, which provides very high resolution, which means radiologists can pick up smaller abnormalities of the body, which translates to earlier diagnoses. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Sadler, Section Chief of Body CT Imaging and Associate Professor of Clinical Radiology at New York Medical College. Welcome, Doctor. Hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. Michael, it appears that things are getting faster and faster, and we're currently at 64 slice, going on 128 slice. Where's it going to end? I think right now most practices throughout our country and probably throughout the world right now are, are, are using 16 slice scanners as their bread and butter machines for doing um, emergency work and standard radiological work. But I think 64 is going to be taking over, and I think within the next five to 10 years, everybody is going to have it because what basically it allows you to do is acquire images much faster, which has implications on throughput, certainly, in a busy practice that's trying to do as much as they can with their machine, and also on what we can do with the images in terms of reconstruction, um, angiography, musculoskeletal type of applications. These are all things that back when we were acquiring 10-millimeter thick images, oftentimes you might miss a subtle fracture or you might miss a small nodule in the lungs. Basically, anything that's under the resolution of a, of a centimeter, you could miss. Now, with 64, even 128 slice, we're going down as low as 0.6 millimeters. So we're starting to pick up things that, say, 20 years ago, no one dreamed we'd be able to see. What kind of things are you able to see now with three-dimensional recreation? I would say there's a couple of things that, in our practice, we use, and I can touch on some other interesting applications also. We're doing three-dimensional work now on all of our vascular work, aneurysm studies or ischemia studies. I'll give you a couple of examples. Patients coming in with pain after eating, and there's a concern that there may be some kind of intestinal angina or ischemia. We are giving these people IV contrasts so that we can light up their SMA in the branches, and then we're putting it into a package and reconstructing almost like a three-dimensional angiogram, looking to see if there's relative perfusion abnormalities to different parts of the intestine. Is there some sort of stress test that you can give these patients that have them eat and then inject them, or does that screw up the results? We haven't touched upon that, and I'm not quite sure anybody is. Remember, one of the problems that we have with any of the studies is when you go to very thin imaging and very fast application, any kind of motion be it peristalsis, be it gas, or anything, can have terrible ramifications on your reconstructions. So we tend to like these people to be, you know, have the NPO as long as possible prior to doing these studies. I, I think that's really, you know, that's really where we're going with this. I don't think we have any, I don't know of a model right now. Well, that's an excellent question to see if you can actually recreate that kind of a uh, ischemia. I'm not sure of that. It's a very good question. So moving along to another body part, uh, I am interested in the coronary arteries. And uh, does the 64 slicer help accommodate for motion of the heart and the heartbeat? Absolutely. You know, that's a good, that's a good question because you would think you've got the stomach 
not too far. You've got intestine right below the diaphragm. You know, lots of the patients that are coming for these studies are old and are older and, and quite often are smokers or COPDers who are going to have trouble breathing laying on their back in a machine. We put them into this tube and we tell them to hold their breath. And some do pretty well with it, some don't. We were able to skate pretty well, though, with the new packages and the software packages of acquiring our images and try to time it with the cardiac cycle so that we're acquiring our images in the same facet of the cycle. So that takes into account the motion. So are you, are you required to beta-block these patients? Well, so I think so. most places will do it and try gingerly. We'll try to be as careful as they can with it. Some don't, but I think the studies are showing they're better off with. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I am with Dr. Michael Sadler, Section Chief of Body CT Imaging and Associate Professor of Clinical Radiology at New York Medical College. Dr. Sadler, how much radiation is involved in one of these multi-detector CAT scans, let's say, of the heart, coronary arteries? You know, radiation for the law... CT scanning and radiation and radiology have been sort of a nebulous concept for years and years and years to the clinicians and to the radiologists to an extent. We all know, we all know that radiation can be a bad thing, but we also know radiation can be a good thing, and that's what allows me to have the field that I have. All radiology departments have very strict guidelines that they have to follow from the American College of Radiology with having a physicist on staff having daily, daily phantom testing of their machine to make sure radiation dosing and radiation exposure to the patients is kept to a minimum and to a standard based on the American College of Radiology guidelines. And every department has that as part of their protocol. So to answer your question, how much radiation, most studies of the body, say a CT scan of the chest or a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, are going to be about as much radiation to the body that one might receive flying from New York to Los Angeles. So I like to use that as sort of my correlate to tell people you are going to get radiation from a CT scan, but you also get radiation when you're in an airplane or when you walk outside. So that's the comparison, the correlate. The other thing to keep in mind, the distance from the radiation to the sensitive areas is also a concern. For example, radiation to a female pelvis where the ovaries are in a young female patient is a concern. That's why a CT scan of the pelvis will deliver more gonadal radiation than, say, a CT scan of the chest or a coronary. And this is also a very, this is a, another factor that needs to be taken into account. So do these newer scans, since they're faster and quicker, do they use less radiation? Studies have shown they cause a little bit more actually. And what current research, and this is really hot off the press in the radiology literature, there have been articles coming out over the last couple of months in our big journals, basically discussing the concept of, as opposed to minimizing radiation, optimizing radiation. In other words, saying that, you know what, we're going to give people a little bit more, unfortunately, using these techniques, but let's make it optimal. And if we're going to be giving them a little more, let's make sure we get that much more information out of the study to make it worth it. So to answer the question before you ask me, in the heart, fortunately, CT of the heart is very targeted to a small area, quite a distance from the gonads, and typically it's in 
older people, where perhaps, you know, the gonadal, you never like radiation, but gonadal radiation might not be as significant or potentially significant in the long run. Uh, are you doing any screening in your facility of asymptomatic people walking off the street? We, you know, we are not. Um, at our facility right now, we're not, but plenty of places are. There's a number of different places throughout New York and throughout the country where there's research using MRI and CT looking at the coronaries. Basically, taking patients for what we call calcium scoring, taking into account that we can put a package, a software package on these machines, acquire very thin images through the coronary vessels and the root of the coronary um, vessels coming off the aorta, and acquire this data, put it into a computer, and have it come out with basically what's called a coronary calcium scoring. It can give you an idea of, well, just how much calcium does this patient have? So, yeah, there is definitely a role for, for screening the asymptomatic patients. What other types of screening populations can you use this for? We have been seeing more and more in our literature, and I'm sure you have in your literature, in the internal medical literature also, work coming out of New York, Cornell especially, in the last five to ten years, has pointed out terrific, terrific advances in picking up small lung cancers early, the so-called screening lung CT. Basically, low dose, very thin imaging in a population who's at high risk, be it smokers, mostly COPD patients. Basically, what they have been finding and have published numerous papers on it is that they are finding cancers earlier and earlier, smaller and smaller, and that patients are able to then receive biopsy, thoroscopic procedures, and that they are getting treatment sooner. The real controversy coming out is, sure, we are finding these cancers earlier, but are these patients in the long run living longer, and what is their quality of life? And that's a large controversy right now in, in the radiology literature and the medical literature because it, the um, latest studies are refuting the Cornell group's assertions that they, people are living longer because we're picking up their cancers sooner. So it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. For a certain population who are at risk for lung cancer, I think it is a good idea to have them screened. I really do. But I do think we need to keep in mind that in the long run, we might not, they, these people might not live longer. So let's say we have a 60-year-old patient who's been smoking for 30 years, hasn't come to the doctor, comes in for a routine exam. I send him for a CAT scan, comes back with three little tiny two-millimeter nodules, and the radiologist says, okay, um, repeat in six months. We repeat in six months, stable. He says, repeat again another six months. When can you stop that repeating? Because it's, you know, I get scared that I'm giving the patient too much radiation? Frankly, I think a lot of the recommendations that come with this have to be taken with a grain of salt, and it needs to be done on the patient's and the clinician's comfort levels. Because I think there are going to be a certain subset of your patients who are going to be extremely vigilant to these reports, and they're going to be calling you and asking you, you know, what do we do with this? Versus there's going to be another subset who are going to go about their business, they'll get their CAT scans, and you'll see them for the routine visits. I think, to answer your question, the best bet, and what we've been using, there's an old adage that we've, that we've used 
for years and years with lung nodule imaging that goes back to even the early days. If you can document stability over a year and a half to two years, I think you can, you can pretty much close the book on one of those small nodules. Problem arises, Larry, oftentimes, depending on the type of machine, the nodule may seem to be getting bigger because of a different technique of acquiring the image. Basically, what I'm saying is if you have a one-millimeter nodule and on one machine, the patient goes somewhere else and they have a different machine and they measure it at, say, 1.5 millimeters, well, has this gotten that much bigger in size or is it just a matter of the machine? Right. So, if you follow what I'm saying, there's some play with this also. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Sadler, who joined us today to talk about multi-detector CT scanning. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.